But Paul's focus is on what God's power means for each one of us. What, what did God's power do that affects us personally, individually? That's what he says, he work, he, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So the first evidence of that power is the resurrection. God raised Jesus from the dead. Second, seated him at his right hand in the heavenlies, heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, power, dominion, above every name of his name, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And this, this is the power of the completion of the redemptive program. It is a fulfillment of Psalm 110, verse 1 and 2. It is the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the God-man, seated. His work is done seated at the right hand of the Father. And that throne on which he is seated is the Lord of the universe. Jesus is the Lord of the universe, far above any conceivable power you and I can imagine. And that is the power that would be manifested in the age to come. The age to come, as, as I understand it, is the millennial kingdom, thousand-year reign of Jesus, when he will be enthroned in Jerusalem, according to Zechariah 14, and will rule and reign over planet Earth, fulfilling the covenantal promise to David, the covenantal promise to Abraham. The third power is he put all things under his feet, and that is subjecting everything. It's the kind of the flip side of the coin he's enthroned, is this, the sphere of his authority, the sphere of his lordship, all things. <laughs> all things have been placed under his feet. And this is the, it's, it's, it's really an adaptation of the language Paul uses in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. And so that, that final aspect of the power that Jesus, uh, or that God has, has shown through Jesus, is his rule over, his headship over head means to rule over his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And there, this is a very, very common and favorite metaphor the Apostle Paul uses, that the church is the body of Jesus. He is the head, and in, in using the analogy of a body, he is the head, we are his body. And so we are his arms, we are his feet, we are his eyes, we're his, we do his work, but he directs us. And so that metaphor of the body of Christ is consistent with 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, Ephesians chapter 4, which we'll study at the rate we're going sometime in July. And it just illustrates this incredible power that God showed through Jesus that affects each and every one of us. The resurrection, the exalted Jesus at the right hand, his lordship over all creation, and his lordship over the church. We are part of the church, the living body of Jesus Christ. And the fullness, that, that fullness word is pleroma, it's a fantastic Greek word. The fullness of him, everything is completed. Everything is tied up neatly into a wonderful knot in Jesus. And of course, that will be finalized when he returns in his second coming uh, and vanquishes his enemies, sets up his kingdom, and what we pray for when we pray the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, will be fulfilled. And so I just, I love this prayer. I prayed it a number of times in my life for others, uh, and it, it's the kind of prayer that reminds us our prayers should be deep, wonderful, 
thought-driven, doctrinally-driven, saying back to God the things that we know that are true. And that's what the psalmist does all the time. As we, as we remind ourselves, as we talk to God, how immeasurable his power and might is, but how unbelievably awesome it is that a God like that wants to have a relationship with me and with you. And so I just wanted to make sure that we, well, one, reviewed, but also just tied up any loose ends there might be about this, this quite, quite fantastic and extraordinary prayer of the Apostle Paul. So Can I ask a question? Oh, of course, absolutely. Um, which is in the body, the fullness, the Potoma that you mentioned, of him who fills all in all. Can, can you expand a little on the who fills all in all? Um, well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's really good. Uh, I, I think that's probably Russ asking that question, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Cause you're usually the one who asks these really complicated, rather e easy to answer, not terribly complex questions. Sorry. <laughs> I, I know I'm, I'm only, I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding you. Um, the, the, the whole idea is um, uh, I'm trying to think of a simple way to say this. The body, as you already know, is the metaphor for the church. And the, 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 the metaphor of the church is the body of Christ. We exhibit the fullness of Jesus. Because you notice that and it's in the English translation that I use, the ESV, the body is, the term body is followed by a comma, the fullness, so that's apposition, that's an appositional statement, which means it's further explaining what the body is. It's the fullness of Jesus who fills all in all. We are his representatives, and we fill his creation. Uh, we, we, um, fill out. We complete his creation because we're taking his message to the world. What is his great commission? Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. And so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an, an illustration of his lordship over the universe, but his lordship over, over the church as the head of the church. And we, the church, his body, fill his creation with the fullness of who he is his message, his gospel, his truth, his power, uh, his grace, his mercy. We are his salt and light. We are representing him in everything we do. And the fullness of him, of Jesus, is exhibited in and through us as all of creation is ultimately filled with the truth. That has both present-day application and future application when he returns. It's what's called a double entendre. It has a an application today and an application in, in the eschaton when Christ returns and sets up his kingdom. It's just demonstrating in, in incredible language of Paul the importance of the church in this age. We are the most important institution of God in fulfilling his redemptive program. It is not politics. It's not the Republican Party. It's not, it's not some individual that people lionize, idealize, and almost make into a demigod. It's Jesus and the redemptive program. Our loyalty is to him. 
not to a political party or some individual or some cause. And so therefore, we are to fill the world with him and his message. And that's what Paul is saying here. And it's that prayer that is to guide, to guard, and to direct the Ephesian church, and therefore to guide, to direct, and to help us to see what our mission is in 2021. We are the church. He is our universal Lord, and we he is going to use us as his body, the fullness of him, all he is, all he represents, as, as we take his message and fill the earth with his message. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Now, that was a four-minute answer to your question, Russ. Thank you. Jim, I have a, I have a question, follow-up on that. Um, each one of us um, is different um, maybe, um, I don't know, uh, attributes to, and not, I don't know that any one of us can, can do it all. So how would you comment on our, uh, individual roles in that regard of what you're, well, I mean, that's, that we'll, we'll get to some of that when we get to chapter 4 in the book of Ephesians, but also the complement to that is 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Romans chapter 12 as well. Uh, that's where you get into the matter of spiritual gifts, because each one of us has spiritual gift, the spiritual enablement, whatever term you want to use to describe that, which is part of the body. And Paul will use that analogy in, 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 in chapter 12 of, a, of a 1 Corinthians, that yeah, you know, one of us, and this is following his and out, one of us is an eye, one of us is an ear, one of us is a leg, one of us. And so the eye doesn't say to the ear, I have no need of you. The ear doesn't say to the eye, I have no need of you. That in, in the body, that's ridiculous. And it's the same in the church. Every one of us has a unique gift, uh, a unique enablement to do what God is, is calling us to do. And when all of it is done together, it's a perfect complementary whole to accomplish the purposes that God has for his church, that Jesus has for his church. And so each one of us has something unique. Um, and I, if I can avoid this, I'd rather not get into spiritual gifts right now. But that is the answer to your question. <clears throat> All right. Thank you. Thank you. With, with this is hopefully is a little bit of a review, at least I think it is. But uh, let me move to this. You have a copy of this slide that was in that uh, additional um, attachment of slides that Joel sent to you the other day. It's just a revision. Each, each climb we meet, I'll probably add one or two slides depending on what we're covering. And it's up to you whether you want to check it out and use it or not. But I got this from a friend of mine, and it, it's, it's a wonderful way to look at Ephesians chapter 2. Because in Ephesians chapter 1, now look at the header there. In Ephesians chapter 1, we looked at God's eternal plan. It's centered in each member of the Trinity. The Father chooses and predestines to adoption. The Son redeems and will complete the final program. Everything's wrapped up in Him. The Holy Spirit seals and is a down payment of God to God for God to keep all of His promises. That eternal plan is then executed by His power, which we just finished summarizing 
two minutes ago in 19 through 23. And so what, what chapter two does is now begins to fill in some of the details of that plan and helps us to understand the means by which God accomplishes that plan. And the means by which God accomplishes that plan is his grace. And so in chapter two, verses one through 10, the first several verses describes what was our condition, what was our situation, where were our loyalties before Jesus came into our life. Then verses 4 through 10 describes what God did, and you'll see the very mo the most important word in verse 4 is but, in contrast to our despicable situation, verses 1 through 3, God did something. And then we will not get to this today, but then verses 11 through 22 focuses from the shifts the focus from the personal individual trophy of God's grace to the communal, to the church. What has happened? We are now in a new community. Jesus calls that community the ecclesia, the church. And we'll talk more about that. So it's, it really is, it's very easy to outline this. It's very easy to see the structure of chapter 2. The first 10 verses focus on the individual person that God saves by his grace. Verses 11 through 22 focuses on this new community, this new covenant community that Christ calls the church. So that's kind of where we're going. So with all of that said, let's take a look. I want to spend a lot of time on this. So feel free to ask questions. I don't want you to in any way. And you don't have to do anything except just interrupt me and say, I want to ask a question or a question or something. But I'll try to stop and give you an opportunity for ask a question. But don't, don't hesitate if you want something clarified. All right. Now, note, please, the first word of chapter 2, verse 1. Now remember, this originally was a letter, so there were no chapter breaks, there were no verse breaks. That was added later uh, to, 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 uh, to make it easy to, to follow it and to structure it and outline it and all that kind of stuff. So the first word I reached in the ESV translation is a coordinating conjunction, and. So obviously, if it's an and, it's, it's coordinating and, and, and connecting with what he just talked about. What did he just talk about in chapter 1? The fantastic, awesome, truly incredible eternal plan of God. And how each member of the Trinity has effected, EFF, has brought about the implementation of this eternal plan. And then... The prayer is focused on the incredible power of God. So the eternal plan combines with the awesome power of God to do something, solve our problem. And to summarize our problem, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So what was the spiritual condition of the human race? Dead in our sins. Now, that 
that refers to our spiritual death. We, because of sin, we are totally separated from God. That's the consequence of the sin in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve, our forefathers, the first human beings, chose to join Satan in his rebellion against God, ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and as God promised, the day you eat, you will die. Phase one, spiritual death, separated from God. Phase two, physical death. And so when Paul is using the term death, it is a summary. It's a, a horrendous, horrific summary of the human condition. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. The term that, that ESV translates as trespass is a term that means we miss the mark of God's moral law. It's like you're, you're shooting archery, and you're shooting your arrows. You don't, you don't hit the bullseye. You don't even hit the target. I mean, you're not hitting the outer rim. You're not even hitting the target. So to, a trespass is you completely and totally miss the mark of God's moral law. And sin, hamartia, is a much broader term, which means all of our actions that are an affront, uh, an, an intentional, defiant disobedience to God. And Paul says, and this is his favorite word of des in describing the human condition, in which you once walked. And the Greek word for walk is peripateo. It's the normal, ordinary walk of the human being. There's nothing extraordinary. The norm for the human race is you're spiritually dead. But he doesn't finish there. In your walk as spiritually dead people, you follow a three-fold standard. Now, that's really fascinating because the, 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 the term that they translate is kata, it's a, it's a preposition, but it means you're following a standard, and that standard has three parts to it. You follow the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived and the third standard, the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. And this is the result, by nature, children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. So let's walk back now, start taking this apart. All right, we're spiritually dead. Every human being is born spiritually dead. The one thing that makes every human being equal is we are all sinners. There are degrees of sin. There, there are certain sins that have a, a much, much more profound effect, but we are all sinners, and we are all spiritually dead. And because we're spiritually dead, which means we are not attuned to, open to, interested in God at all, we follow a set of standards that are utterly and totally opposed to God. What are those standards? First of all, we walk, remember, peripateo, it's our normal, ordinary, there's nothing extraordinary about the walk of a spiritually dead person, the course of this world. 
And as you know, uh, we have talked about this a lot, so this should not be something new to you. But Paul uses the term world the same way Jesus does, the same way John does in the Apostles, uh, John's uh, uh, Gospel, the Gospel of John. World is that system. It's not the physical world out here. I'm looking out the window and I see snow and all that. It's not the physical world. It's that system that stands opposed to God over which Satan rules. The, the world is that summary statement that, that the New Testament almost universally likes to use to describe the, the utter rebellion against God. But it's an organized rebellion because it's an organized rebellion led by a person. That person is Satan. It's an angelic being, but a person, the personality of Satan. And so you have, oh my, that's, that's how desperate our situation is? Yes, it is. You're following a standard that is utterly opposed to everything God stands for. And then if I can say something, I'm probably, this isn't a particularly revolutionary thought, but nonetheless, I think it's, it's important to say that you and I should not be surprised by evil. And what I mean by that, we, we live in a broken, fallen world that is absolutely enslaved to evil. So we should not be surprised by it. And yet, I mean, I every day I'm shocked by something that's going on. And I, what I meant by that is we, we got to come back and look. This is how desperate the situation of the human race is. God had to do something to change this. And that's what verse 4 and following is about. We're not quite there yet. Now, secondly, we walk not only the course of this world, but following, because he is the head of this system. The world has a head. The world has a ruler. The world has a dictator. The rule has an authoritarian. It's the prince of the power of the air. Jesus referred to Satan in that way. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And so the prince of the power of the air is Satan. He's the energizing power of the world system. He's the chief rebel. He is the one that's spoken of in Isaiah 14, verse 12 and following, who organized the rebellion against God and said, I will be like the Most High. I will topple him from his throne. And so this is these two phrases, the world and the principality of the air, summarizes the cosmic rebellion against God. We are born into that kingdom. Paul calls it the kingdom of darkness in Colossians 1. But in addition not only the world and the prince of the power of the air, but the passions of our flesh. And I put a little equal sign there, it's appositional, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So that, that the flesh, the Greek word is sarks, flesh is energized and empowered by our thought life and by the desires of our body. It's not only sexual lust, which is a part of it, but it's all of the things, our thought life, everything that we do, our actions, our motives, everything evidences this fleshly, self-indulgent, self, selfish um, manner of doing everything. And so he's, he, Paul has described this desperate situation of the human race. 
to be spiritually dead, i.e. to be separated from God because of our trespasses and sins, means that we walk according to the three powers, the world, the devil, and the flesh, all utterly opposed to God. And the consequence of that is, notice his language, the end of verse 3, we are by nature children of wrath. They are words of judgment. God had to do something, or the human race is going to self-destruct. God had to do something, or the human race, in its rebellion against God, is going to utterly and totally destroy everything God's created. And Paul says, like the rest of mankind, this is the human condition. Verses 1 through 3, it's one of the most powerful summaries of the human condition you can find in the Bible. I mean, all of these things are all over the Bible, but Paul's distilled them down into three verses. This summarizes the desperate situation of humanity. We're separated from God. We're dead spiritually because of our sin. And we follow a set of standards that are utterly opposed to God, the world, Satan, and the flesh. Consequence, judgment. All right. Now, I'm so glad I didn't stop here. I'm so glad it isn't a quarter of 12 and we'd be finishing our class. It would be a terrible way to finish the class. But always remember, Paul is describing the individual human person's condition and all of humanity. This describes humanity. Now, what's yeah. the first word of verse 4? But. But. God's going to do something to change this. Now, I thought somebody was going to ask me a question, so let me stop. Uh, that was that was me. Um, earlier in verse 2, or verse 1, rather, 2-1, um, uh, I made a note that you called uh, trespasses kind of like missing the target which I had traditionally understood as sins um, and trespasses is like it is in, you know, it says do not trespass and you intentionally walk across the line. But in verse five, it's trespasses now referred to as an intentional willful rebellion is which, which is what I understand it to be. Is there something that I missed in that? Uh, Russ, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I completely understand your question. Maybe when you when when you um, describe verse one, you said you yes. were dead in your right. trespasses right. and sins. Right. And then you describe the trespass as like missing the target, like uh, uh, yeah. like you didn't even hit the outer rim. You missed right. it completely. That's my understanding of a Greek term for sin, which is the sin is where you was an archery term where you shot an arrow and yes. you didn't miss the target, but a trespass. It went beyond sin. It said, I see that the target, and I'm going to shoot the other way because I'm doing it intentionally because I want to go across the boundary that yes. I'm not supposed it, to the idea, Yeah, the idea of trespass is you could, in effect, you could care less about the target. Right. I mean, you don't care about the target. <laughs> Got it. So I just, I misheard that then. Sorry, that's just my... Well, it's just, yeah, it's, it's just a... Um, in, in, there are actually three major terms for sin in the New Testament. Uh -huh. Paul chooses to use just two of them here. Uh -huh. But they really do summarize 
the despicable, <laughs> the despicable nature of humanity. Is the third it's wickedness? Pardon me. Is the third wickedness? Uh, sometimes it's translated wickedness. Yes. So that, but, I mean, but the the idea here is, and, and this is what, again, this is a little beyond where he is in, in uh -huh. Ephesians, but it's what he's doing in chapter one, one, two, and three of Romans. How bad is our condition? Well, he in that in those three chapters, he itemizes the four dimensions of God's revelation: creation, conscience, moral law, and Jesus. And what has humanity done with each one of those? Suppressed the truth and unrighteousness, which is the way he puts it. So, I mean, you know, Russ, that's intentional. <laughs> right, exactly. It's clear. Yeah. It's not that God has hidden this. He's made it very clear who he is, what he's doing, and so on. What has humanity done with it? He suppressed the truth. This so, isn't so, well, I'm not really skilled with this bow and arrow, so right. I'm just, well, I'm trying. Right. No, no, no. The word trespass doesn't say, I'm trying. trying. The idea of trespass is, I'm defiantly, intentionally, I don't care about the target. Exactly. Not so I, I, I saw... Sin is kind of the idea of where Job was sacrificing for his sons in case they might have screwed something up. Yeah, where yeah. it trespasses, I see that you said no, and I'm going across that anyway because yeah. that's what I want. And wickedness is I'm totally, it's another escalation where I'm totally sold out. I'm enjoying this and I am actively op opposing yeah. God for my own purposes or just, you know, I've, basically it was like we were talking about with. Pharaoh, right? You hit a certain point. There's a point, a Rubicon, which you can't come yeah. back from. Yeah, and but and only by God's grace. I mean, it, when, it, that's why verse four is is the comfort of this passage. Amen. But I mean, he's Paul, and this it's it parallels, although it's much shorter, but it parallels what he's doing in Romans one, two, and three. In Romans one, two, and three, one, two, and three, Paul wants to show the universal condemnation of the human race. Every single person, mm -hmm. apart from Christ, every single person is in a despicable, hopeless situation. They deserve nothing but judgment. But, of course, God offers another way. And that's why you end verse 3 with this horrible thought, children of wrath. <laughs> that's our nature. And that word nature, that, that, we're born that way. And what, what he is describing in these three verses is the intentional defiance of humanity. You, got to, you always have to remember that in, in all of this, God has a witness in four categories. That's the term Paul uses in Romans. God has a witness. He, in, in, in Romans 2.14, he uses the word conscience, and that's a witness of God. I mean, people can't say, well, I didn't know. I didn't know what God's standard was. I didn't know. That's that's ludicrous. And so the, the language of this, this meaning verses 1 through 3, the language of this is we're not victims of this. This isn't victimization. This is open, understandable defiance of God. He's revealed himself in four ways. No one can ever say, I didn't know about you. I didn't know about your standards. Yeah. And so what he's trying to show here is the utter hopelessness of the human condition if you didn't have those first two words of verse 4. But God. I God don't know how, 
I don't know how you can't just praise God for oh, the, when oh, you absolutely. read something like this. I mean, somebody cuts me off on the freeway and I'm ready to go to children of wrath immediately, right? It's, yeah, yeah. it's like you just can't read something like this and not go, wow. That's just right. like, <laughs> and if we're open and transparent and honest, we can understand what this means. <laughs> this isn't something abstract. Well, I don't really think <laughs> I understand what Paul's saying here. What did he mean yeah. by that? <laughs> this, this, this is where we are. We're still struggling with some of this, but by God's grace, we have a new power, the power we just read about in the end of chapter one, and we have a new position, which is what he's going to be describing, our new position when we put our faith in Christ. So the hope, you get to verse three, and it's hopeless. You begin verse four, ah, there's another way, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, with which he loved us. It should remind you of John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so if God hadn't acted, <laughs> we, we would be in an utterly desperate situation. I really believe that the human race would have self-destructed a long time ago. But God, Paul speaks in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, of that restrainer, the restrainer of evil, which I think is the Holy Spirit, but that's yeah. not the point. And so you have this, this tremendous change that's brought about by those two words, but God. Only God could change this. So Paul wants to now delve into what did God do? Okay, any other questions before we move yeah, on? Yeah, I, I, I had another question, Jim. Would you say there's there's equity between the Old Testament times without Christ and <clears throat> the New Testament times following Christ? What was your word? Is it, was your word equity? Was that what you, yeah, I, yeah I, as far as people having an opportunity oh. to come to know God personally in a personal way. You mentioned the four elements and I mean, well, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, yes. I mean, in the sense that um, the the creation, conscience, and God's moral law is is all through the Old Testament, and it didn't matter where you were, who you were, you all three of those witnesses to one degree or another were available to you, at at least minimally, God's creation. That's the whole point of Romans one eighteen through thirty four. And Paul shows, and, and that's why that chapter is so important, Paul shows the consequences of the human race just rejecting the first revelation of God, just rejecting that. That's a downward spiral when you look at the, the, those last several verses in chapter 1. And so and then chapter 2 is conscience. Every human being, is it, that's what Paul says, conscience is a witness of God. That doesn't matter whether you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament. And then God's moral. So yeah, I mean, what the Old Testament did not have, whether it's the Old Testament person in Israel or the Old Testament person in Assyria, the Old Testament person did not have the revelation of Jesus. That, of course, comes when, when, when he enters uh, into the human race as the God-man. But the revelations of God are clear, and each revelation means the human race is accountable. And no one has, that's what Paul says in Romans, no one is ever going to stand before God and say, I didn't know about you. The language Paul used in Romans 1, without excuse. Aren't we addressing this also four-dimensionally, right? Uh, we were chosen, we just said in the last slide, uh, or last week, 
that we were chosen before the foundation of the world, right? And that, you know, when you remove linear time from this, it, it opens a whole nother series if you're looking at it from above yeah. rather than... Which is, God's, which is God's perspective. It's like the railroad tracks thing exactly. that we're talking Thank about. You. That's right. Because the focus of those early verses in chapter one are on the right-hand side of the railroad track. Time is linear because we are in the tohu bohu, the let there be light, and we're on this rocket ride, you know, and we're experiencing time in this linear fashion. Yeah. But that's not God's perspective. It is not he at who all. inhabits eternity. No, God is that's that's the and and you know we can move on here, but that's the amazing thing about our God is that He's above all this. He is not bound to space and time. We are. So let's now begin chapter uh, one, uh, two, verses four and following what time is it? Oh, it's almost 1230, right? Let me read this again. Uh, again, I cannot, I hope you did this in your Bible, uh, that that phrase, but God, in verse four, you've underlined that. Maybe you put a little rectangular box around it. That makes all the difference in the world. But God being rich in mercy, that's one of the attributes of God, God's mercy is what we deserve he chooses not to give us. Why? Because of the great love with which he loved us. God will judge rebellious humanity, but he gives rebellious, rebellious humanity another way to live their lives. He sends his son. He, he sends the revelation of creation. He sends the revelation of, his, of human conscience, the revelation of his moral, et cetera, et cetera. That's because he loves us. He keeps knocking on the door. I'm here. Don't ignore me. I love you. Don't thwart my love and mercy for you. He keeps, he keeps screaming at us. And that's the language of C.S. Lewis in his wonderful book, The Problem of Pain. God keeps screaming at us, but we're deaf. So God, rich in mercy, because of the love with which he loved, even when we were dead in our trespasses, takes you back to that word used in verse 1, intentional willful rebellion. What did he do? Made us alive together with Christ. And so what I did, you see it on the slide, I drew an arrow from dead to alive. Only God could change that. Nothing else, no one else could change that, but God made us alive together with Christ. How? By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, I didn't write that here. I probably should have on the slide. But after verse 6, I should put a little bracket. This is positional truth. What Paul's just described in verse 5 and verse 6 is the positional truth of the believer. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, this is how God sees you. You're no longer spiritually dead. You're spiritually alive with Jesus. You are now identified with Jesus. He's raised us up. The resurrection that occurred to Jesus on Easter Sunday is the resurrection that's promised to all of us. And positionally, 
When God sees us, he sees us with Christ. We are totally identified with Christ. I use that little phrase, I, I focused on a little phrase that's used 242 times in the New Testament to be in Christ. That's our new identity. Is so that the new, same? Is that the same in Christ and with Christ? I had that that question because here he changes to with Christ, like alongside or with instead of in. Yeah, uh, that that's right. We're, we're like we are. We're identity and we're with. We're in and we're with. And it's like the with is that personal, intimate identification with Jesus. I mean, it's it's. I mean, this is fantastic truth. And like, here's what our standard used to be, the world, the devil, and the flesh. Here is our new standard, our new identity, our new position. We're alive with Jesus, not spiritually dead. We are raised up and identified with him in heaven. That's our new identity. I mean, it's just, this is absolutely unimaginable. But it has an additional result. This echoes back to chapter 1. So that, this is the result. In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And right in the little bracket after verse 7, we are trophies of God's grace. Now, to whom? To whom is God going to show us off as the trophies of his grace? That phrase, show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. To whom are he going to show us off? He's, he's, going to hold, he's going to hold up Woody and say, Woody, you are a trophy of my grace. Who's watching? Well, the Bible says in another passage, the angels are watching. And the angels utterly marvel at the grace of God. Why would you do what you did for those rebellious, dirty, filthy creatures on that ugly planet that's been defaced by these rebels? Why would you do that? Because I love them. Because my mercy knows no bound. And when they put their faith in my son, they are a trophy of my grace. What did we have to do with that? Nothing. We had nothing to do with that. So Paul therefore goes on, one of the most important passages in the Bible. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, that demonstrative pronoun this is referring to by grace through faith, is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. So what Paul is describing in verses 4 through 7, how did that occur? Did I work for that? Did I merit that? Did I earn that? Did somehow I, I deserve that? No. By grace through faith. How do I apply all this? One word, faith. And this is not of something I did. It's a gift. Not a result of works. No one is ever going to be in heaven 
put their thumbs in their suspenders and say, look at how fantastic I am. See, I deserve this. That is absolutely stupid, ridiculous, ludicrous, and inane. Every single one of us will be in heaven and will look at one another and say, isn't God's grace wonderful? Isn't it wonderful what God has done for us in Jesus? Isn't it wonderful? Look at all of this. We didn't deserve this, but look, we're joint heirs with Jesus, his son. And these are the things we'll say to one another. No one is going to stand in heaven and show all their degrees, show their portfolio of investments, show all of their wealth and their property and say, see, this is how I got here. No. When it comes to the cross and when it comes to heaven, we're all spiritually equal. And so Paul, and please do not miss this, the key word in this passage is grace. Someone has defined grace of the acrostics, God's riches at Christ's expense. Someone has defined grace as unmerited favor. Someone has defined grace as getting in all of its majesty, what we did not deserve. So each one of those is another way of saying it, but grace is at the heart. It's a very important sentence. Grace is at the heart of how God deals with humanity. God always deals with the human race on the basis of grace. Saving grace, grace sustaining grace, and then generally and broadly to all humans, common grace. That God sends moisture, rain. That God sends the sunlight. Where I live in a little cul-de-sac, the sun doesn't just shine on 774. It shines on my neighbors, some of which are pagans. One, one is which an atheist. The other is a Buddhist. That's God's common grace. He shows favor because he chooses to show favor. But he offers eternal saving grace. And what we have to do, and that's the gift, verse 8, the gift. A gift has no value if you don't pick it up. Jim, we have to pick it up. We put our faith in Christ. We yeah. respond in faith. And you, I, when we used to meet at the bank building and stuff, I would sometimes do. i put a pen on the table and say, this is the gift of salvation. If you don't pick it up, you will never you will never, ever experience the benefits of the gift. But you've got to pick it up. That's faith. And so you have this, this wonderful summary. How did God do it? Rich in mercy because he loved us. By his grace, that's the instrument. By his grace, he offered us salvation. But it's a gift. And it's not automatic. If you don't pick up the gift, you don't get the benefits. If you don't put your faith in Christ, you do not get eternal life. And that's part of, of the, the, the tragedy of so much of the human condition. Despite everything God's had done, people still thumb their nose at God. So I, I'm not done. There's something I want to deal with with chapter uh, 2, verse 10, because that that's a verse that's going to take us about seven minutes to deal with. So any questions so far? This is, oh. Jim, uh, I just think about, you know, you mentioned two neighbors there and, and, um, and, you know, it just, it just seems like we would do it all in different ways. But if you really care 
about those people. I don't mean you personally. I mean all of us collectively. Um, what do we have to lose except a rebuff if we are kind to them and we show them love and tell them the story of Christ? Because if we don't, Well, I mean that's that, that's I mean that's exactly right. It, it's just uh, it's so important for us to to if we have received the gift, verse eight, then we want to make sure that others have an opportunity to respond to the gift too. And uh, we Peggy and I, I told just before, but one uh, in addition, some of the neighbors I briefly talked about, but my my daughter-in-law, Jonathan's wife, um, her father has had a series of strokes. He's not in very good condition at all, but he still, he defiantly doesn't want anything to do with Jesus. And, you know, I've said this to others in the family, and Peggy and I pray about this each morning, Lord, it's, it's, it's unimaginable for us that Pete would go into eternity without Jesus. But I know this, that Pete is never going to, if he chooses to not accept the gift, he's never going to go into eternity without having opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to respond. I know he's had that opportunity. But our job, Fred and everybody else, our job is to be faithful, but to leave the results to the Lord, but to be faithful. That means we do have to share the message. We, we do have to take that opportunity to show the, the love of God in a variety of different ways, but to show the love of God and enable us to have that opportunity. So yeah, it's so important. Because this verse one through three does describe how desperate the human condition is. But then the, the marvelous way in God, in which God acted. And then, uh, was there any, uh, were there any other questions or comments before? We, I want to, I'd love to do one more thing if I could, but if I can, I'll save it for next week. All right, verse 10. Now, this is a, uh, wow, this is really a wonderful a wonderful verse to end it with. For we are his workmanship. The Greek word is poema. We actually get a word poem from that, but a more intentional meaning in the first century Greek was a masterpiece, like a piece of art, a piece of sculpture, more than likely it was used of a sculpture because sculpture was a very important art form in the ancient world. But anyway, like a sculpture, a perfect, beautiful sculpture created in Christ Jesus for good works. Our good works don't earn salvation, but God wants us then to be the agent of his good works. That's back to the end of of, of, of that verse, Russ, that you asked me a question about, what verse was that? Uh, there, uh, verse 23, the fullness of him. We are now to exhibit by our good work, by representing him as salt and light, the fullness of who Christ is, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And by, I should have done this, but the word walk in verse 1 is the same word as walk in verse 10. What a contrast. The normal, ordinary walk of the spiritually dead person is following the standard of the world, the devil, and the flesh. Now our walk is a transformational walk. It's the walk of being created in Christ Jesus to do the good works that represent him, 
We are now his masterpiece. We're not only the trophy of his grace, verse 8, we are the masterpiece. We are the masterpiece of God's grace. So we're the trophy of his grace. We're the masterpiece of his grace to represent him. We now walk in those good works. Now, no longer walk according to the standard of the world, the devil, and the flesh. Now we walk according to the standard of Jesus as his poema. And so what are the good works? Love the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And you look at, you look at the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And it goes to on and on and on. What does that look like? The phrase good works. See the New Testament for what that means. <laughs> because it is an entirely new lifestyle an entirely new set of priorities, an entirely new set. It's all that is the process of sanctification. As God, the Father, conforms us, transforms us, really, into the image of his Son. And so, I mean, uh, verse, verses 1 through 10 of Ephesians 2, I mean, it's, it's one of the truly, truly incredible passages of the Bible. I mean, there's so much in there. In one sense, I've just scratched the surface with some of this. But, I mean, it's just an incredibly valuable passage of Scripture. Verses 1 through 3, that's what we used to be. God changed it and offered, this, offered us this, this gift, verse 8. And when we take the gift, we are now, one, a trophy of His grace. Two, we are now His masterpiece that he sends out to represent him. We have a new way to walk, a new way to live, a new set of standards. I mean, it's just, oh, it's just majestic. Now, I know we don't get excited about biblical truth in this class, and that's okay. I know you're hiding your joy and your exhilaration, but maybe when we turn it off and I leave, you could just say to yourself, amen, this is really good stuff. All right. It's probably time for me to quit. Uh, we're almost at the end. Are you all with me? Isn't this a great passage of Scripture? Seriously, it's just wondrous. So, well, that's good. I hope, I hope it's been a blessing to you. What we will do next week is we'll go, if you want to look at this chart again, you have a copy of this and the revised stuff Joel sent you, but I want to look now at the second half of the chart, the, the communal. We move from hostility to unity, from death to life in Christ. Now the community, the new covenant community. It's a, it's a new covenant community characterized by unity. And he's going to talk about this. He's going to talk about what, 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 what we were like communally before Christ. What's the transformation? What's the new church, this new covenant community look like? And this too is a tremendous passage of Scripture. And we'll probably spend a whole hour on that as well. All right. Well, I'm going to pray and uh, let you go. And uh, hope you, this will be a blessing to you as you think about it through the week. Lord, we thank you that uh, you've given us your word. Thank you for your revelation creation. Thank you for your revelation in conscience, for your lesson, your moral law in Jesus. And now through the written word of God, we are so privileged to be able to hold the Word of God in our laps, or to read it, to study it, to meditate upon it, 
Uh, Deuteronomy 6 talks about putting it in our hearts. It's not just in our heads. It goes those 18 inches to our heart. It becomes a part of us. It's internalized. It, it's, it's now our spiritual energy and our spiritual life. Thank you for these tremendous truths that this passage teaches. The despicable condition of the human race, verses 1 through 3, how God gives an opportunity to the human race to change it. He offers them a gift. It's in Jesus. And to be identified with Christ, to, to be personally intimate in that relationship with Christ, is our new identity. And all of the new positional truth that characterizes us, with the intended result, these are awesome words, Lord. We're a trophy of your grace, and we're your poema, your masterpiece that represents you. And we have a new walk. We're not walking according to those evil standards. We walk according to Christ, doing the good works, that being his masterpiece, as we represent him to this dark world. Energize and, and empower these men to be strong, strong men of faith, committed to you to represent you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Man, we'll see you next week. Thank you, Jim. You're welcome. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Have a good week. See ya.